This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Netflix digging in on a controversial comedy special by Dave Chappelle, even as pressure mounts from LGBTQ groups and some of its own employees to pull it. Chappelle's comments on transgender people, the issue, how far can comics go in today's ultra-sensitive culture? We'll go in depth. The FDA signing off on Moderna and Johnson & Johnson COVID booster shots, but there is still a whole lot of debate within the medical community about boosters. And can we avoid yet another winter of our COVID discontent? Travel restrictions for people looking to come into the country, into this country, about to be eased if you're vaccinated. We're going to the Middle East. Lebanon looks like it's a country on the verge of total collapse, which is really, really bad news for the rest of the region. And then all hail Adele, the queen of heartstring pulling pop music is back. Six years. That's right. I wish I could go away for six years. <laughs> six years. Would we hail your return like we're hailing hers? I doubt it. <laughs> but we start with Dave Chappelle. Alonzo Bowden is a stand-up comic actor and host of the podcast, Who's Paying Attention? He's playing, by the way, the Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank next week, and that's the uh, 22nd and 23rd of October. Alonzo, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. How are you guys doing? Fine. So uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to see the, the uh, Chappelle uh, special or maybe read comments, but what's your take? Well, yes, I have seen it, and um, I've read some of the comments, not all of the comments. Uh, personally, well, okay, first of all, tell your listeners, or I guess I'm telling your listeners, spoiler alert, if you watch the end of the special, he talks about why he has his views. And I think one of the things I think society needs to understand about comics is we're comics, we're comedians. It's not the same when we say it as when somebody who sets policy says it. If a congressperson or, or a senator or even a president says something, they set policies, they make laws. That's a big difference than when a comedian says it which is his personal view. I think Dave gave his personal views, his reasons for it. I um, I will say the education I've received and the, the point made in a comment that I didn't think about but is true is that it's not up to non-trans people to tell a trans or gay or any other person how to feel about a joke. So I can't tell them how to feel about a joke I can tell them how I feel about the joke. Is it funny in the way people know him to be funny, or is he doing a kind of thing on wokeness and jokes he's told that people have come after him for, and is that like the through line here? Well, you know, this is another issue, and and this is all my opinion, of course, of what's happened with Dave Chappelle and how big he has become, okay? And the only person I can compare it to is George Carlin, when George Carlin was at the height of his fame. You move into the, the area of people look at you as a social commentator, right? And what put that kind of importance on what you say. Uh, is he apologizing for the past? Again, I don't know. I think apology is too strong a word. I think he's revisiting it and, and saying it. Is he telling jokes about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But not everything he says is a joke, right? So if he says 10 things, five of them might be funny, and then five of them might just be, this is my opinion. 
So do you think that employees, some employees anyway, of Netflix who are demanding that the, the show be pulled, they're threatening, I guess, to, to walk out, are they off base? Yeah, yeah, they are. And the reason I say that is because everyone's for free speech until someone says something that bothers them, right? And, and <laughs> right. then it's suddenly, oh, you can't say that. You know, we, I mean, we're dealing with that in all aspects of our society, right? You look at the anti-vaxxers, right? I, I don't agree with their opinion. Do they have a right to say it? Yeah, they do. I, I don't like it, but they have a right to say it. Now, they don't have the right to block your entrance to a vaccine place, but they have a right to say that the vaccine is going to make you magnetic if that's what they want to say, right? Yeah. So, You're going to so, stick a spoon to your forehead. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You can, you know, so he can say it to the um, LGBTQ community at Netflix. Well, if he's not allowed to, like, what other group can't? Or what other person, what other comic do we remove because they said something that you're fine with, but a different group didn't? You know, hey, listen, what about the magnetic people? All right, don't they have rights? Don't the magnetic people have a right to speak up? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you can't. Well, they stick together, yeah. You can't it's pick very and good. choose. <laughs> I'll tell you another thing about this, and this is, again, this is all, I'm giving you all of this as my opinion. I've had a pretty good career. I love my job. Dave is most famous comic in the world worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So I don't know that my opinion is going to stop Dave from anything. So, so I like to, to qualify it with that. But as a society, look where we are today. You know, it wasn't that long ago, 17 years ago, the debate was over uh, gay marriage. And we actually, when I say we, the nation, was debating to make it illegal. You talk about discrimination, to make it illegal for a group of people to get married. And now we're at a point where a group of people are upset over a joke. So thankfully, you know, we progressed in that sense, right? Dave's not going to get canceled over this. Lonzo Bowden, stand-up comic, actor, hosts the podcast Who's Paying Attention? And he's at Flappers in Burbank next weekend, 22nd, 23rd. Well, last winter, you remember last winter, ended up being the uh, depths of our collective COVID nightmare. Here's the question. Can we avoid another hellish winter ahead? You're listening to uh, KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. If only you knew what we were laughing about. Uh, and I'm Charles Feldman. I made a Star Trek joke. <laughs> yes, you did. But uh, I won't say anything other than no, that. No, we won't. <laughs> uh, still to come, plastic pollution absolutely everywhere, every corner of the globe. Scientists might be close to a plant-based biodegradable plastic alternative, so we'll explain that one. Before that, there's a whole variety of COVID vaccine booster shots available now. So uh, which combo are you going to take? Yeah, choose one. Speaking of uh, COVID, last year, at this time, you I'm sure all remember, uh, it was a pretty bad winter. You know, first we thought things were going to get better because vaccines became available. Then the Delta variant uh, emerged and things went downhill again. Now, seeing things seem to be picking up, but uh, false sense of security. Let's find out. Dr. Peter Cotona, clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine and formerly worked as an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC, which, by the way, I meant to ask you, that sounds like a really interesting job. It was. 
it was one of the most interesting jobs I ever had. Well, well, one day we'll talk more about that. But let's talk about the winter coming up. Uh, figures are going down, which is good. Hospitalizations, deaths, still a lot of people infected, still a lot of people dying nonetheless. Um, are we in a much better shape, and should we be relaxing a little bit, a lot, what? Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, it's a complicated question. Last Going into fall and winter, we had no flu, we had no vaccine, and we had no, co- we had no um, uh, significant bad variant of disease. So we didn't have any of those things, some good for the better, some not good for the better. And we don't know what's going to happen with flu season this year. We know that in some parts of the country, we're doing very, very well, like we are in California, for example. But in other parts of the country, we're not doing so well. And globally, we're doing terribly. So you have to weigh all those things together to see where are we going to be uh, in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And it's, it's hard to judge. But locally, the trajectories are going in a good direction. Okay. So we're looking pretty good here. The other places you talk about, though, we're worried about what the effect of Delta over the winter, where more people are inside and spreading it to each other if they're not vaccinated. And then if we do get like a bad flu and both of those are happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it all boils down to separating the uninfected from the people that are transmissible. And if you can get those people far farther apart by avoiding crowds, by getting vaccinated, by wearing a mask, if you can do all those things, you're going to be in a great position in a week or a month. But if you don't do those things, you can be right back where you were a year ago. What curveball, and, and, I, and I get that we probably can't imagine every curveball that could be thrown at us, but are there any curveballs that you can kind of see on the distant horizon that maybe you're thinking, gee, we got to really watch that one? Well, variants are what's driving this. If we had the Wuhan initial variant that was around, we would have been in much better shape now than we are. You know, so the question is, what variant will come next? Is it going to be a more nasty variant than Delta is, or is it going to be a very mild variant? There are historical precedents where outbreaks of coronavirus kind of went, they kind of did their thing, and then they became a very, very non-invasive kind of, you know, cold-like situation, which we would be very happy with here. In terms of regulations and whether to relax and, and what the public health officials are talking about, we're seeing some of it in San Francisco, albeit mostly in like fully vaccinated settings. Do we, do you think, just kind of stick with what we're at with right now through winter and then see how the spring looks? Or is there a reason to, to start taking some masks off if, you know, vaccine rates are pretty high? It depends on where you are. If you're in a very, very low prevalence area, it may be okay to take masks off in certain situations. If you're in a very high prevalence area where hospitals are overwhelmed, emergency rooms are busy, it may not be such a good idea to take it off. So I think it's going to depend locally on where you are and what the situation there is. Dr. Peter Katona, Clinical Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. When was the last time you bumped into an international traveler? I guess when I traveled internationally. Because you went out of the country. <laughs> yes. but, Don't ask me. Ask them. Yeah, yeah, but, a well, while. Yeah, a while. For, Borders were closed. That's right. But that is now all going to change, provided one key 
thing. And this is KNX In Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, coming up on uh, In Depth, bad news for Lebanon, good news for Adele, the bad news for Lebanon on the verge of collapse, the good news for Adele. She's back. We cover all the topics Absolutely. on this show. Uh, right now, though, the pandemic ban on international travelers coming to the U.S. going to be lifted by the beginning of November. Josh Wingrove, White House reporter for Bloomberg News, is with us. Uh, Josh, there are always rules, though, with some things. And uh, what are the rules for this? Well, they're evolving. <laughs> Short answer. I mean, previously, the U.S. has restricted travel based on where you're coming from, in particular Europe, India, China, Brazil, hotspots, in other words. If you're not an American, you can't fly directly to the U.S. from there, and you can't actually come at all if you've been in those places in the last uh, previous two weeks. And what they're changing it to is a system based on the person rather than the region. So vaccinated people will be able to come regardless of their uh, where they're coming from, uh, so long as they can prove vaccination, so long as they you know give contact tracing information and have a negative test. They're also opening the land borders uh, to tourists and non-essential travel uh, uh, on the, both the southern and northern borders, Canada and Mexico. So that's a change. And this will essentially loosen the restrictions for people who are vaccinated globally and tighten them for unvaccinated people who right now, if they're not in the hotspot region, don't face restrictions, but now won't be able to enter. You know, still some details to come, including exemptions. We think kids, for instance, will probably be exempt. But a big change this is easily the biggest change to the international travel policy that the Biden administration has taken, uh, you know, with regards to the pandemic. So that raises the question, how much of this change is predicated on medical data and how much is a political decision? And maybe does it matter? Well, I think in some ways they've been taking longer than other countries would say. You know, Europe had opened to America, Canada had opened to America, for example, and they've been sort of clamoring for reciprocity there. You know, we know vaccinated people uh, are, are much less likely to uh, spread uh, the, the coronavirus, in particular the Delta variant, of course. You know, they're a little bit up in the air in terms of vaccine efficacy, though, in that, you know, they're going to maybe recognize any vaccine uh, that is authorized by the WHO. That's a bigger list than the, the ones that are cleared here in the U.S. So, for instance, people with AstraZeneca, uh, they're clear to go. We're also told, uh, although they haven't formally announced this yet, that people that have mixed doses uh, will be considered fully vaccinated. There's actually some data that shows that those people are maybe even better off than some people that didn't mix doses. Uh, it's sort of evolving. But, you know, the, the, it's a moving target here. But what they're saying essentially is we're, we're, they're going to make sure that if you're flying into the U.S. and you're not a U.S. citizen, generally speaking, if you're a foreign national, you have to be vaccinated. And that is not the case right now. Is there anybody upset that there's no just straight testing procedure to get in, that you have to have that vaccine? Because some places you can go, and as long as you test, then, okay, get on the plane, you're fine. Yeah, I mean, they might be, but I don't know that anyone would be too interested in their complaint. That is the case for Americans. So unvaccinated Americans, of course, can't be turned away. They have to have a test and pledge to take another test when they get here. Vaccinated Americans, pretty you know, clear to go, and vaccinated foreigners, clear to go. Unvaccinated foreigners, it's essentially a straight ban. So, yeah, it's less 
less stringent or less flexible, I guess, than you know some countries in Europe, for instance, that have said, ah, if you can prove a test, you're good to go. But right now, there hasn't been a lot of blowback. On the contrary, it's being welcomed, in particular by airlines, even U.S. airlines. They make a lot of money on those transatlantic routes in particular, and they've been struggling, and so this is a welcome news for them. You know, I'm curious about, uh, we're going to talk a little bit later on the show about booster shots and whether you should get one and which one you get, but I'm curious on these uh, travel uh, uh, the lifting of these restrictions, does it take into account uh, booster shots? Because it's getting more complicated than it was a month or two ago, where if you had two shots of, of say, the Pfizer or the Moderna, you were right. considered fully vaccinated. But what about with booster shots now? It, as of now, no. And there's a few reasons, I guess, that they would point to on that. Number one, as we know, we're only boosting Pfizer people right now. That could change. The hearing uh, you know, ongoing this uh, this uh, yesterday and today, the FDA advisory panel is looking at whether Moderna and Johnson and Johnson recipients will get a booster shot, and if so, in particular for those J and J folks, what shot they will get a second J and J or whether something else. So you know, it's still up in the air. As far as the U.S. is concerned, though, still, even if you haven't got your booster, you're considered fully vaccinated. They suggest some people get boosters, in particular if you're 65 and up. If it's been six months and you got Pfizer, they say you should get a booster. If you're 18 to 64 and you have underlying health conditions, they say you should get a booster. And if you're 18 to 64 and you just work in a place that you might be exposed, they say you can get a booster, but they don't say you necessarily should. So they're sort of hedging it, and that's why they still think two shots is fully vaccinated, and that's why they will consider the same globally. But it's possible, certainly, that they will change that as we get more data. Anthony Fauci, of course, is top, the top COVID advisor for the president, has said he thinks that ultimately Moderna and Pfizer will settle at a three-shot sort of full dose. And we, we thought it would be two, and they think it'll be three, as opposed to having to get a booster every year or so. Josh Wingrove, White House reporter for Bloomberg News. Josh, thanks. Well, uh, we gave you a little taste of what's coming up because we're going to talk more about those COVID booster vaccines. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. FDA advisory panel has uh, given the green light for COVID vaccine boosters from Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. First wave will be targeted towards Americans over 65, people with compromised immune systems, also high-risk workers. Question remains whether all of us will eventually need one of these. So let's pose that question right off the bat to Dr. Eric Rubin, who's editor of the New England Journal of Medicine and a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Commission. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So people who don't fit into one of these categories and, and some of the you know, one category is so broad, you know, anybody of any age who has any condition that might give them some issues, I, I suppose, could walk in and easily get a booster shot. But the need for the boosters, if you're not 65 and older or don't don't have these comorbidities is what? Well, I, I think it's a great question. Um, and it's not entirely clear, which is part of the reason that not it's not approved for everybody. It's clear that there's some advantage to people who have who are at high risk of developing severe disease because there have been some breakthroughs people are getting ending up hospitalized or ending up in the ICU. They're still relatively rare in vaccinated people, but if you're someone who falls into one of those groups that might get there, then it's probably a good idea. But for others, for many other people, it's not so clear that there's that much risk. It's still true that 
while these vaccines may not work as well during this time when this new viral variant, Delta, is circulating, they still do an awfully good job of protecting you against severe illness. Do you think there are, is a whole crowd of people out there, though, that is just so worried about even a breakthrough infection that's that's mild or moderate because it's become this really scary sounding thing that they just want a booster because they feel like they should get one? Oh, a lot of them have emailed me. And in fact, a lot of them have gone out and gotten boosters uh, because it, it, it you know, th this is an unusual time. You don't need a prescription to get a booster. And so people are going out and getting them. Uh, but But I think there's the way to think about this is how much benefit do you get and is there any additional risk to getting another dose the benefit we know is really worth worth it probably for people who are at high risk and right now it's not so clear that it's that worth it for low risk individuals and then the risk part of it we're going to learn more and more about because i so i think that the recommendations are going to change as we get more and more people vaccinated and we get an idea of if there's any additional worries about side effects. But even even so-called high risk, uh, isn't it kind of amorphous? I mean, you know, everyone 60 or 65 and older is lumped into this one general category of high risk, but there are very healthy 65-year-olds and there are very healthy 90-year-olds. William Shatner just went into into space and came back and he looked fine. Uh, so even, even those so-called high risk groups seem to be ill-defined in some ways. You're totally right. And in fact, at the FDA hearing today, uh, the representative of the FDA, uh, Dr. Peter Marks, said that by some estimates, about half of people fall into the risk groups that are being that are being uh, described as high risk uh, right now. So in fact, it is pretty amorphous. But there are clear high risk groups. Um, I think that if I were William Shatner's age, I wouldn't take a chance. I'd be in there in a second getting uh, a vaccine. More importantly, if you have, if you're on chemotherapy, if you have a, an immune compromising condition, you should absolutely be getting the vaccine. And then as the risk decreases, it becomes less and less clear how important it is. Take me through what they're talking about when it comes to the Johnson & Johnson shot so far, because that's not even like on a six-month timeline anymore. They've got it down shorter than that. So was this one always going to be like a two-shot thing, and then they thought they'd get away with one, but then that's not the case, and everybody's two or three? We just end up that way? I, I kind of think you have it right. Um, remember that the FDA hasn't made a ruling yet, so we've ha just had a discussion at the advisory committee. So we'll have to wait to see what they say. But I think the evidence suggests that it would have made sense for this to be a two-shot deal. And, and because of that, the vaccine works and it does help prevent severe disease, but it may not work quite as well as the mRNA vaccines. And an extra dose of, of this vaccine or another vaccine conceivably uh, is probably going to be important for people. You that's, probably gonna, that's probably going to be for everybody, not just high-risk people. You mentioned in passing that as time goes by, we may learn more about potential side effects of booster shots. Which side effects in particular do you have concern about? So I think the major concerns are in much younger people who are at lower risk and uh, are at, at who are at low risk of getting COVID-19, severe COVID-19 and are at risk for one particular side effect, inflammation of the heart called the myocarditis. Uh, and we don't really know how high that risk is. We have some estimates, 
And we don't know if a third dose of an mRNA vaccine is going to elevate that risk at all. But we're going to have the data because Israel, which is in, which is vaccinating vast numbers of people, essentially they'll give a third dose to everybody, at least for the Pfizer vaccine, the only one they use, we'll have an idea of how much risk there was even for young people. And we'll have the, that information pretty soon. Dr. Eric Rubin, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Commission. Doctor, thanks. Coming up, we're watching what could be the collapse of Lebanon as a functioning country, and that would be really bad news for the entire Middle East. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, unfortunately, the... uh, Good people of Lebanon, no strangers to chaos and violence. The country that used to be considered the Riviera of the Mediterranean was the scene of a bloody years-long civil war. That was from the 1980s into the 1990s. And, well, chaos is back in that country. It is struggling with its economy, its infrastructure, and its basic government services since last year's massive explosion at the Beirut port. Failures of the electrical grid, clashes between militias this week have pushed uh, Lebanon to the brink of collapse. Joseph Westfall served as U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration, currently professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Lauder Institute of International Relations. Joseph, thanks for being here. So, yeah, we, we say collapse, we went through some of it, but what does it look like to you right now? It's, it, certainly, it certainly looks like on the way to collapse. Uh, everything from the shortages of everything from food to you know uh, all kinds of goods and services politics out of control telecommunications almost completely um irreversible at this point in time um along with you know a million and a half syrian refugees um it's it's just a a an awful situation and uh it the instability uh uh the current instability just seems to be, in a, in a way, growing beyond just the, the, the port issues and the corruption issues. Um, you know, Lebanon has a border with Israel, it's a border with, large border with Syria. And I worry about a lot of other things. I worry about the, the long Mediterranean, uh, uh, you know, uh, coast uh, of, 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 of Lebanon that could be used by Russia or others uh, to fulfill their own intentions in the Middle East. You know, I'm, cu- I, I'm curious about something because, you know, and maybe we are using the wrong language because we're talking about how Lebanon is on the brink of collapse, but the description that you're painting sounds like it, it, it has collapsed. What is the difference between Lebanon being on the brink of collapse with all those things you just ticked off and what would it look like when it indeed, if it does, collapse? It has collapsed. Okay. And, and in my view, the only way it, it, it can be, I mean, President Macron has tried to do things there. I don't know. I haven't seen much from us, the United States, in terms of Lebanon. I know the Saudis are very worried about it um, because of all the things that, that it affects uh, by, by its particular position, geographic position. Uh, but it has collapsed. I mean, I, I, I can't think of it in any other sense. Yeah, you went through some of the, the countries on the borders, the neighborhood. What does this mean in terms of ongoing problems with stability? Well, you know, it, it, it furthers the instability of the region, the, the relationship between Israel and, and, 
and its neighbors, particularly Syria, um, the, the Russian involvement in Syria, uh, the Turkish interests in the region uh, that, that in the past haven't necessarily impacted uh, Lebanon as much, but they may have more to say about that. Um, I think the Golan Heights is always an area of great instability. So you have you have a, a real a powder keg of, of a situation there. Um, we as as a country, you know, the president has pretty much announced that you know we need to focus on other parts of the world. We need to not uh, deploy forces uh, in the Middle East any, any further. So I don't know how Lebanon stabilizes itself at this point in time. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I mean, it it certainly sounds like it is of this country's national interest to do something i don't know what it is but something to help that country but we're really we're really not uh i i can't say that we're not because i don't really know exactly what we're doing behind the scenes but i can tell you that we have to work with israel in this case uh because they have a very strong vested interest in. i think we should also work with jordan and and saudi arabia and the other um you know, Gulf countries, uh, they they depend on some of the stability in this region. But, you know, the other thing that's happened there is I talk to Lebanese folks all the time, uh, business people um, who are all doing business outside of Lebanon, all have taken their money out of Lebanon. So the future of Lebanon just looks very dim. And I'm just not sure where this is all going. Yeah, I mean, because even if some government takes over and things calm down, can you actually build back if there's number one, the money's been moved, like you said, and then two, the people have moved who could get out and there's been like a brain drain. Right. And you've got a complete collapse of any confidence in government. Uh, you have the conflict in Hezbollah and other uh, other groups in, in um and, you know, we consider Hezbollah a terrorist organization, so we don't necessarily negotiate with them. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very concerning situation for me. Was there ever a time in, in recent history when Lebanon was considered stable? And, and if so, why was it then? And then what happened to destabilize it? Well, when I was ambassador, we were trying very hard to to uh, forge a way forward for, for Lebanon to have a stable government. Uh, they had not elected a president for years. Um, their army was almost in collapse. So we were able to get resources from other countries to support uh, strengthening their army, to bring some stability that way, to get a president elected and, and, and sort of unite the various groups, including Hezbollah at that time, uh, behind some kind of, you know, uh, coalition government. And that did work for a while. When Hariri came on the scene, that helped. But that has since, you know, been, in my view, has been, has collapsed. Joseph Westfall served as a U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration, now professor, University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for talking to us. More in-depth on the way, another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It turns out that plastic alternatives advertised as biodegradable might still end up 
wasting away in a landfill. If the raw materials are not sustainably sourced, these bioplastics could take years to fully break down. Luckily, there's a host of companies in the U.S. and Europe already using technology to try and solve some of these problems. With us now is Jessica Vieira, who's the Senior Director of Sustainability at Appeal. That's a company that sells a plant-based spray for produce that can replace single-use plastic wrappings for fruits and veggies. Jessica, thanks for being with us so i don't understand how does this <laughs> he was does, asking me yeah too. i was asking mike during the commercial break there's no so, bag there's no bag <laughs> i'm i'm used to a bag how does this replace a bag sure and thanks so much for having me uh so appeal is an edible plant-derived coating that's applied to fresh fruits and vegetables that extends the shelf life of produce. So it lasts up to two to three times longer. Uh, really the way the product works is the same way that a peel or skin on a fruit or vegetable works already. Um, our you know, scientists have really gone in and studied how the skin of a strawberry or the peel of a lemon really works. And it turns out that the ingredients in both are the same, even though that lemon lasts a lot longer. And so we've worked with material science to understand how do we use these plant materials that are ubiquitous in all of the fresh fruits and vegetables we eat to create this additional layer or you know an extra peel, you might say, right. on fresh fruits or vegetables. Okay, that- so wait, wait. So, so, I go, <laughs> so I go to the supermarket. I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to picture this. He's pushing his cart. Yeah, I'm pushing my cart. I'm he in the supermarket. He sees cucumbers. Apples. I don't really like cucumbers, but apples. I'll go for apples. Okay. So uh, what do I do with I I want eight apples. So okay. uh, how, do, how does your product interact with those eight apples that are going to end up in my cart? So you'll look for the apples. If they're going to look exactly the same as any of the other apples, but they're oh, going to have a sticker or like some kind of, you know, signage that's going to see, you're going to see appeal um, as a label. And really the only difference between those apples and the other apples is that they're going to last longer. So they're going to be sweet longer. They're going to um, be nutritious longer. They're going to, yeah, but is, know, are they, are they in a, but are they in a bag? What what are they in? How do I gather the? How do I transport on top of the apple? Thing. Yeah, but but how do oh, I transport right. the eight a, the eight apples from the supermarket to my car? Oh, great question. Well, so for something like a cucumber, where the plastic is just wrapping individual cucumbers, we're just going to straight up replace that plastic with a peel. For um, something like a bag of apples. Now the now the supplier can think about you know is a plastic bag really the best way to 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 package that? You can add a peel onto the apples and they're going to last longer in that plastic bag. But oftentimes that plastic is also trying to maintain perishability. So maybe they can put it in a different kind of packaging that isn't a single use plastic. Um, maybe instead of a plastic clamshell, they're using a corrugated cardboard box instead that could be totally recycled. Um, so it really creates a lot more opportunity to use a more sustainable packaging option when you still want that grouping. What's the spray made out of? So it's made of, of lipids that are already exist in, in fresh fruits and vegetables. So um, really these materials are ubiquitous in all plant materials. So they're in the skin, seeds, peels of the fruits and vegetables already. And is this product currently being used? Yeah, 
It's you can find in Kroger stores across the United States, um, as well as a number of other retailers, as well as different produce types in in Europe. So right now in the U.S., you can find uh, avocados, limes, and organic apples, as well as you know long English cucumbers soon um, that are apply that have appeal on them. And when it's time to eat the stuff, I just wash it like I normally would. And does it come off or can I, I can eat it if it's like, you know, lipids, I guess. Yeah, it's totally edible um, and it's intended to be eaten. So you don't do anything differently. So um, so you don't get any. I'm just curious. I mean, you know, we live in a world where people don't want to get vaccinated for a deadly disease because they don't know what's in the vaccine. You don't get any any blowback from from customers saying, what is it that you're spraying on my fruit? I mean, people with anything new, people always have questions. But as soon as, you know, we do the education and explain this is already in the fruit and vegetable that you're eating, it's really just a little bit of an extra peel. Um, People feel really comfortable and they recognize all of the benefits uh, from having longer lasting produce. There's going to need to be a little sign there uh, that says this is what this is. Jessica Vieira, Senior Director of Sustainability at Appeal. Thanks for talking to us. But it it sounds like there's more... It sounds like there's more work to be done because you have the apple peel and now you have a thing on top oh, of the apple peel. Run under the sink and bite into it. And then you go into a bag anyway. No. Well, you have to take the put cucumber it in the and put it in the cart. I don't want cucumbers. <laughs> they're good for you. <laughs> I don't like cucumbers. <laughs> when, when we come back, uh, Adele is back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Actually, you're listening to Adele. (laughs) With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. She's back. The new single, Easy On Me, dropped this morning, quickly became Spotify's most streamed song in a single day. It's prelude to the new album, 30, promises to be the same powerhouse of emotional ballads that has made Adele fans among the most dedicated in all of music. Adele is promising to address what she describes as her inner turmoil in the new album. Melissa Ruggieri is the national music writer for USA Today. Thanks for being with us, Melissa. Uh, What is her inner turmoil? I think the thing about Adele is that she's so relatable to people because she's talking about this album is going to be about her divorce. She's talking about how her divorce upended the the life of her young son. And so many people can relate to that type of situation, you know, have gone through the same kind of thing. And she's so honest about everything too. And I think that's the thing that people, people can sniff out, you know, the, the things that aren't really real. And Adele has been nothing if not authentic throughout her career, which when you think about it, she's been with us since 2008. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe that she's been around as long as she has, but from the very beginning, when you name your song or you, when you name your album after your age, and then you continue to name your albums following uh, the trajectory as, as you're growing older, people automatically tap into that and kind of feel like, okay, I know where I was when I was 21. I know where I was when I was 25, when I was 30. And they want to kind of go on that same journey, I think. Yeah. Even if the like specifics of her story are unique to her, we all remember being either that age or having some relationship or having some problem and then trying to get through it. And then it takes everybody right on back. 
And what's really interesting is she's at that point in her career, or she's been at that point in her career where she's beyond what you might consider relatable as far as the fact that, you know, she's a gazillionaire. <laughs> so yeah, she's, global not the, superstar, she's not the, yeah. right, right. She's not the every woman that she was in the very beginning when Chasing Pavements came out about, you know, a boyfriend she found out was cheating on her. And then everybody went, oh yeah, I've been through that. I know what that's like, you know, I mean, she's so far beyond that. And then even going through her, her, her physical transformation and losing so much weight, I, you know, women can look at that as inspirational as well. But, you know, now she also looks like a superstar, you know, so no. even though she she has lost maybe a few of those things that you would think would make her less relatable, I think the emotional impact that she has is still just so potent that it doesn't matter. But to your point, she can afford now to go into space. <laughs> she could. She could join everybody else going into space these days. Right? But, but let me <laughs> let me ask you this, though, because uh, she is an interesting performer in that, uh, you know, every performer has people who really love them and, and people who don't. But she in particular has I mean, I've heard and I've read comments from people who really just love everything she does. But I've also read, you know, people who really don't like her. In fact, you know, Saturday Night Live, I think, did a, a pretty famous or infamous uh, sketch that was poking fun at her. Why is that? You know, it's funny. I was just talking to someone earlier today who said, I really don't like Adele that much because she always sings sad ballads and I like my music to be upbeat. And I said, well, you know, she's got Rolling in the Deep and, you know, I named a few other big hits that she's had that were upbeat. But they said, yeah, but even lyrically, she's still always talking about things, you know, like heartbreak and, you know, just being unhappy about certain things that have happened in her life and not necessarily this this carefreeness that I guess some people are looking for. And I, I guess that's probably it, why she doesn't maybe appeal to everybody that they might feel like she's a little bit mired in the melancholy a little bit too much. But on the other hand, you can look at it as melancholy or you can look at it as wistfulness. And it, it you know, just depends on your perspective and maybe what you're going through in your own life and how you might relate to what it is that she's singing about. This song, what do you think? Uh, I read one review saying, okay, you know, it comes with emotional punch, but also it's, uh, it's formulaic. It sounds like other Adele songs. So are we evolving here or is this the point that she comes back every five years and like jabs us with this? I will be perfectly honest. The song did not grab me the first time I listened to it. Um, I thought it was a bit like Hello in the sense that it has no real chorus, but it still managed to catch my attention. Of course, you want to listen to her lyrics. And that's what I was really listening to. And I sort of felt the lyrics were a little bit, you know, oh, I was young when this was happening. So go easy on me because it really wasn't my fault. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, like almost like placing blame on somebody else. But but then the more I listened to it, I, I will say that piano melody is absolutely gorgeous. And the thing about Adele, that you always, you know, that's always going to elevate her is that voice and that bridge, that that's that final bridge of the song. I mean, just she soars on that. And she has, you know, few contemporaries who can hit those kinds of notes with the ease that she seems to do it. And I think that's what is making the song so powerful and, you know, why it has become the most streamed on Spotify in a day and stuff like that. And also just the anticipation. Um, I, I think there's a faction of her uh, fans who are going, like you said earlier, you know, are just going to love whatever it is that she put out. It could have just been Adele, you know, reading her interview in British Vogue out loud. But you touched on an interesting point uh, before, Melissa, uh, in that she's changed, of course, as a person. She's not the same person. Uh, she's a much wealthier person she's a superstar status so do you think that that the songs that when she was younger and and not that superstar which came across as being genuine now might to some ears be manipulative I think to some that's absolutely a fair point to make um but on the other hand I think since she has gone through a tumultuous time in her life going you know getting divorced and having a, a young child and talking about the effect on him 
I think that is genuine. I mean, I, I think, you know, she said that she wrote Easy On Me when she was first going through her separation and then didn't write any other songs for, you know, six or eight months afterward because she sort of felt like, okay, I got everything out that I needed to say in this one song. And then obviously she found other things to say <laughs> since she has an album coming out next month. But I, I do think that, uh, you know, that there are enough things that have gone on in her life in a public way that isn't that doesn't it doesn't feel too calculated of course we haven't heard the rest of the album so i can't make a full judgment on that but as far as this particular song is concerned i think it does come from a genuine place and i do think that that's again why people kind of you know automatically say i get this you know i feel this i know what this is like and you know it's just so funny when you see these stories of women who before they even listen to the song were stocking up on wine and getting the tissue box out <laughs> and, and you know i'm not sure that that's how i would want to prepare to spend my evening because you know adele's i do adele song let's cry yeah we're going to therapy tonight everyone <laughs> right right exactly exactly All right. but but you know, hey, it, she she really does have a, a universal appeal. You know, I'm sure you've heard the rumors that she's going to have a Vegas residency sometime next year, which I think is a perfect move for her because it allows her to stay put, just like Celine Dion did. And that trail has been set by people like Celine Dion and Elton John. And she's at that point in her career now that it's just the absolute perfect landing spot that let the people come to me kind of thing. All right. Melissa Ruggieri, national music writer for USA Today. Thanks. That's the show for this week. We'll be back Monday, 1 p.m.